0: My temptation sometimes if I'm having a conflict or an issue or I want to settle something with somebody is to, is to, I know I'll express myself better in an email or a text, but I know if it's supposed to have a lasting effect and really help build a relationship, it's got to be person to person.
1: Hi, this is Drew Kugler and welcome back to Tell Me What to Say. If you haven't seen the TED presentation by Robert Waldinger from the Harvard Medical School about what it takes to be healthy and happy throughout life, I highly recommend that you run, not walk, to the TED website and take a look at the presentation. Spoiler alert, the key to health and happiness are the close relationships that you have in your life. One such relationship I'm fortunate enough to have is with today's guest on Tell Me What to Say, Rob Eshman. Rob is the former publisher and executive editor of the Jewish Journal. We touch in this podcast upon conversations not only in the workplace, but maybe even more interesting, the range of conversations that take place around the family dinner table. So now my conversation with Rob Eshman on Tell Me What to Say. What did you want to be when you grew up? A writer. So you knew from what age that you wanted to be a writer, and why? What was so intriguing about it to get your attention then?
0: I liked to write from a young age, From I mean, at least from second grade. I remember writing a book in second grade. It was, I think, seven pages, and it was Whoa. mostly pictures. But my teacher read it to the class, and I think I was hooked. Um, Mm. But I, the funny thing for me, here's the funny thing, starting with me, is I don't think of myself as a conversationalist. I Mm. think of myself more as somebody who's more comfortable in front of a pen and paper or a screen and expressing myself much better on print, on paper, than I ever do in conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that the best writers the writers I admire the most tend to be also great storytellers and great conversationalists Mm -hmm. Um, I don't put myself in that category and I think that there is a connection um, between the ability to have great conversations and also express yourself really well Mm -hmm. and fluidly in print Um, having said that I just feel I I always felt more comfortable writing Mm. Um, to this day I have to and this is something I credit you with. If I have an issue I have to deal with, I have to remember the words of Drew Kugler who says, email is bullshit. Yep. <laughs> and that anything important has to be done over the phone or face to face. So my temptation sometimes if I'm having a conflict or an issue or I want to settle something with somebody is to, is to I know I'll express myself better in an email or a text, but I know if it's supposed to have a lasting effect and really help build a relationship, it's got to be person to person. Yep. So, um, so yeah, it was a writer, and I, I, you know, it was a very amorphous thing. I learned later on to say, you want to be a writer is not saying that much. Um, it's really what kind of writing and how you go about creating that career. Um, but that's what I wanted to do.
1: Mm. And when you think about your writing career. Uh, and, again, staying, at least in my mind, with the theme about conversation. Uh, What's in your mind's eye when you think about important conversations you've been in that have contributed to either your best writing or writing that you remember? I had a um,
0: professor at Dartmouth
1: named Noel
0: Perrin who was a really accomplished essayist. He wrote for the New Yorker. He had a couple of um, successful books back when people read these kind of books. One was called First Person Rural. I think the other one was Second Person Rural. Mm -hmm. It was about a city boy who goes to live in the country. It's based on his life. So he was the... we didn't have a journalism department um, so I couldn't be a journalism major, Uh, but I created a kind of environmental journalism minor out of different classes. And because I thought I wanted to go into environmental journalism. And um, I asked him for advice, and he told me, um, he said there's only two things you need to do. He said, write about what you love, what you're passionate about, because life is short, and feel free to turn anything in after the 11th draft.
1: Mm. And did you eventually write stuff for him in that yeah, I loved, I loved writing the, for him. And he, was,
0: he was exacting. He was a superb line editor. He had that kind of E.B. White. He came out of that school, the New mm-hmm. Yorker sensibility. Um, and he was a great teacher. And, uh, and it really taught me that just don't ever think anything you write is good until you've polished it. Hmm. Um, and then also to write about things you really care about. Um, And and that's good advice and bad advice, I found out, because a lot of times when you're building a career, um, you you probably will write about a lot of stuff you don't care that deeply about, but you have to care about the writing nevertheless. You have to Mm. care about what you're doing nevertheless. Right. But you can't always write
1: about what you deeply care about. Yeah, because you write, at least what I know, right? You write a weekly column uh, of some length and... 850 I'm, words. Thank you. Not that anyone counts. <laughs> right. um, but you—you, you, you, I'm biased in our friendship that there's every time that I read them, I can hear you. Uh, it's a special kind of writing that you do. So that then leads to maybe it's about a conversation with yourself. Is there even close to any sort of process or way that you get yourself to that point? Where you can create that kind of writing that's so that, that borders on the passion because mm-hmm. anybody who reads you gets that. Um, do you what do you go through to get there to be able to produce that? I think it's it's
0: it's an internal experience and also an external experience. Externally, I talk to people and mm. I have those conversations. Like, what do you? What's going on? What do you think is important this week? What, what's what's bugging you this week? What's, what are people talking about in your lives? Like we have our, we're sitting in the conference room of the Jewish Journal where we have our editorial meetings, and I always I like to ask people, you know, what were people talking about at your Shabbat table, or were they talking about at your Seder table? What are people talking about? And that'll kind of give me a sense of what people seem to be, what's on people's minds. And it may not be what's on my mind, but at least it gives me something to go from. But it's also, um, you know, and I read everything that needs mm-hmm. to be read. Um, the Atlantic, Washington Post, New York Times, Breitbart, everything that's out there. Um, and then I just let it kind of sit with myself, probably for too long, pushing right up against the Tuesday deadline, and try to figure out what I really care about. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, I, I do take what Noel Perrin said to heart. Like, I, I, I don't know how many more columns I'll get to write, and I think it's a real privilege mm. to be able to have an audience that's going to read what I'm going to write, um, that's going to take it seriously. So what do I want to tell them? What do I want to communicate? What, what's It's my chance to say something that I really care about. So mm-hmm. that sometimes takes me a while to figure out what's really... Mm-hmm. And sometimes it means, you know, writing one column and then Feeling like there's no passion in it, and tossing it and writing something else.
1: Yeah, does do you literally ever get to the point, say on Monday or whatever that deadline is on Tuesday, where you have to remind yourself, other than that the columns do of this notion of okay, do you you know is there a dialogue with yourself that says okay, what is it that I care about, or does that just flow at the point when you decide to write? Um, at this
0: point, it. it kind of flows and i just have to trust it Mm. and i sat down to write a column last a couple weeks ago um and it it just it wasn't when it's not coming out when it's like i feel like i'm pushing it i'm pulling it i'm just forcing it then i know something's amiss right and so what will happen is I'll, i'll do that because you have to have something on paper and then inevitably I'll walk into the office and um, the manager will say, where's your column? And I'll say, I don't like it. And I'll sit down at my computer and then within gone. 10 mm. minutes, something that I really care about comes out. Okay. And I just live with it. Sometimes I think, you know, it could be, <laughs> I just have to trust myself. Yep. Sometimes those are my best columns and sometimes not. Yeah. But they're at least honest you. to myself.
1: Right. So so I have thought often and seen through real experience that the notion of trusting oneself and what you bring what you can bring is a key to successfully communicating in general right there's a there's an old saying that that I remind some clients of that you know it's it's hard to lead a cavalry if you think you look funny on a horse <laughs> meaning that you've got to be in the right frame of mind to produce something worth following okay so what what i wonder is you know do you ever have to get to tuesday and you've written something and you've turned it in and like you said you probably got to let it go yeah. but where you're you're not as happy as you'd like to be
0: i'd say every tuesday
1: every tuesday
0: you know wish i had more time wish I, it's the same I mean, don't doesn't everybody have this problem? I, I know I do with conversations as well. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't there the thing you wish you had said? Yep. The conversation, you know, you wish you had had. The yep. the so there's a sentence you left out, or, um, you know, the deeper thought that you didn't quite get to in the piece. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, you know, I'm limited to 850 words in print because I don't yep. like to, um, which is this thing that they still, you know, a, a few people still publish on and still read. Yep. And so, 850 words isn't that much. No, no. Um, online, I could write longer, but I tend to leave it alone once I've done it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it. it ha- I, I don't think I'm really ever totally that satisfied. I think, but then I thought, you know, if I had a month to write a column, would it be that much different? I don't know.
1: Yeah. So, what were people um, as you sat around this conference table? What What are people talking about? Around the Seder table, or in conversations that you you and your colleagues are hearing about, just give well, us a little this temp- time Passover, frame. Passover.
0: It was about um, what the president's press secretary said about Hitler mm-hmm. and gassing. Mm-hmm. That even Hitler didn't gas people. Right. Um, and then um, I think there was some Trump talk. Uh, that was the big thing this Passover. A mm-hmm. lot of. Uh, Trump talk. A lot of um, drop jaws over that. Yep. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, like in our state or table, we really didn't talk about Trump. What did you talk about? Family. You know, we had family. You don't see your family that much. And when you do, you're always busy. And so when you finally have a chance to get together and just catch up with the kids and what there's going on in their lives and with <laughs> your brother and with your friends and, yep, you know, it wasn't, it felt like... It, it it felt like it was too good for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> don't waste it on you. We him, don't want right? to waste it, another right? yet another conversation on him yeah. or, you know. So we just talked about other stuff, and, yeah. and we were also doing a seder, and I have this advantage of having um, being married to somebody who really knows a lot about that stuff. So yep. we asked questions about Passover and about spirituality and liberation and what it means, mm-hmm. and it, it 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 got good.
1: Yeah, and the people around you because I've I've sat at many Seder tables where a certain member of our family um, forces us to try to be—to converse in a certain way. Never about Yeah, ask the big question. Let's go around and hear everybody's answer. And the kids somehow are able to go to the bathroom at that point, (laughs) and the whole thing dies off quick, and we all resist. Um, I have to say, my— I'm married to a Rabbi Naomi Levy,
0: and the second night Seder, my brother was there with his family, and um, his daughter is a teacher. She teaches fourth grade. Mm-hmm. She's been doing it for several years now at a tough school in, in the Bay Area. And so, when it got to the time of the four children, where there's these, you get to a part of the Passover Seder where you read about the four different types of children: the wicked child, the um, smart child, the child, the simple child.
1: The and the fourth my, one.
0: And the fourth one, right. would be The Rick uh, Perry. Rick Perry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. but that'll get you a job someday. So secretary of energy <laughs> child, <trials. on>. right? <laughs> uh, wise, wicked, We'll we'll edit that in later. So um, so she turned to my niece and she said, "You're a teacher. What do you think of the pedagogy? Like, have, how do you deal with a child who's obstreperous, or how do you deal with a child?" And she said something that you would love. She said, you know, you build a relationship mm. and you find out what motivates that child and mm-hmm. then you use that to get them that's to right. work with you. And then she told, you know, hysterical stories about teaching these kids, with, yep. you know. So, um, so it got very real and it got interesting. There was The T word wasn't mentioned. Oh, great. That's,
1: yeah, That's a rare table, <laughs> and a rare table. But speaking of passions... Uh, I know because we've built a friendship uh, around two passions of ours. Um, one of those is food, uh, and the other is Howard Stern. So how I can—I don't even need to fit conversations on top of this, but, but, but those things are so uh, consistent. And I'll only talk about your life for a second. Mm-hmm. What is it about those two things— Um, you can tie them together or keep them separate, that keeps you so diligent in your uh, consumption of them? Um, Well, in the case of food,
0: as long as I've been passionate about writing, I've been passionate about food. And I think one of the challenges in my life is figuring out how much time I devote in my life to writing and how much, you know, I, I... I get to integrate them somewhat by blogging about food and Mm -hmm. assigning food stories here and editing food stories and living in kind of the Jewish food world to some extent. But, you know, I kind of uh, uh, feel torn sometimes about my passions in those worlds. Um, So I've just always, for decades, I started life as a baker at Il Fornaio, actually mm. at Yellen's Chocolate Fudge Cake Bakery. I was a baker at the age of 14. Where
1: was that place? In Encino. Encino.
0: In the, um, Encino and, and Ventura. Got it. Um, so I started, my first job was in bakeries. All my, my job after that was at Miss Grace Lemon Cakes in a bakery. Then in college, I supported myself making sourdough bread at a local bakery mm. and in the food service industry and food service there. And then when I graduated, I went into catering and had my own catering. You know, I was a cook, a line cook, and then a, I had my own catering company in San Francisco, I mean, in, in Los Angeles. Um, so I made a living at it, and then it was also my passion. And then I think part of me just felt like I couldn't, I, I couldn't get to the part of cooking that felt like it was right for me as a career. I hmm. didn't think I wanted to be in the kitchen 19 or 20 hours a day. Um, which I guess is a sign of true passion and um, I didn't really know and and so I you know and, and writing always seemed to be the thing that um, I, I always wanted to do as a career um, and Howard you know Howard's one of those people that it he's a teacher I mean it's hmm. like in a weird way I know it's it's demented to people that don't listen to him or that only know him through his public image but you know in some ways I see so many I've learned so much from him and not only is he funny and I enjoy it and I always always am guaranteed at least a laugh in my 20 25 minute commute I will laugh on the way to work and that's amazing I Even mean you can watch yourself, right? you could watch a 2 hour comedy and not yeah. crack a smile right But I am always diverted and entertained by what goes on in that show. And then I'm always, I I always get something out of just listening to Howard. Um, You know, for one thing, he's in an industry or the part of the media that is really the worst. I mean, radio, you know, and he always talks about that. Mm -hmm. But he made it into something amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, frankly, I see a parallel. I mean, being in the Jewish journalism, you're not, considered mainstream, you're not considered like, you know, it's kind of the, um, the junk bond of journalism or the, uh, whatever the, the kind of marginal ethnic press in journalism. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've learned from Howard, if you, you take what you have and you make it really good. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying, you know, we've tried, I've tried to do here at the journal. I don't know to the extent I've succeeded, but just because you're at an FM station, just because you're doing morning drive time. You know, you listen to any other morning drive, it's pretty lousy. Yep. Howard's raised it, you know. So you can work to raise the bar, and then how does he do it? You know, like, you bring every bit of the strengths of the people on his staff, like really bringing them to bear. So even if it's the guy who cuts his TV clips, like he becomes part of the staff, you know, you, pull out the most you can from him. So it's really pulling out the most you can from everybody Um, and, you know, kind of learning where you can break barriers and trying to break them. And, you know, I don't know that we've succeeded beyond my wildest dreams here, but I think we've done better than people expect from a Jewish paper or a Jewish publication. And a lot of that is just Howard's, you know, modeling what he's done in his
1: career. And it's such an easy... Segue to in understanding Stern. Um, I mean, you write a you write a blog about it, an occasional blog. I've, I've actually got to help you on a couple. Serious Stern. Serious Serious Stern on the JewishJournal.com. Yes, com. it's it's that's right. Been
0: a while since I've kept it up on a regular basis. That's right. Like but every really, other like every other right. blogger out there. <laughs>
1: that's right. The, <laughs> amen to that. Yeah. So the um, but the issue is one of the issues with Howard, which which. Again, takes us on this path of conversation uh, is that over the years he's changed. Um, he relies, uh, some people criticize him for it, but a lot of people are commending him for it, that he relies much more heavily on the notion of the interview. Yeah. there, And his skill as an interviewer is oh. beyond. Well, that's the other right? thing.
0: I, I mean, I've learned right. so much listening to him doing interviews, and he's got to do a show. I always, there's this. A company called masterclass and they have like steve mm-hmm. martin teach mm-hmm. comedy and aaron sorkin teach screenwriting and they've got to have howard teach interviewing yeah uh, and storytelling i think those are the two things he excels at yeah. i mean he could keep a story going about his father ordering blueberries mm-hmm. and and decaf copy he could keep that story a going for Dunkin' donuts for, a donuts a for 15 donuts. minutes have you on the edge of the seat make it seem better than the most exciting thing that ever happened in your life. Yep. And he knows how to do it. He knows how to control his voice. He knows how to create tension. Um, and then also interviewing, there's just nobody better. And I, yeah. I have to say, I was blogging about Howard years ago before he became recognized for that. But the thing I saw in him was, um, there's just at, at that particular skill of creating a relationship and, uh, and, and drawing people out, yeah. I mean, there's nobody close to it.
1: Yeah, I was gonna. I was wondering though. Except you, Drew, you're. Getting, I'm, you're I'm getting, getting, getting there. A little <laughs> way to go, but I, I, I am wondering what could a listener, if they were able to suspend the disbelief about Howard, what they could learn, since this show is ultimately about thinking and learning. My show mm-hmm. is, and and that is where I grab on to to Howard a little bit. Um, What could the listener who's running a business, um, and you you began to answer the question a few minutes ago, what could they learn from Howard about communication, about conversation? I often think of that because I listen to him as much as you do. Mm -hmm. What's the application?
0: Well, I I would say first shift to separate I don't know Howard I just know the Howard Stern on the radio so right. I don't know what you learn from Pat Howard Stern in his private life and how he really is but I do know that one thing is he's always working on himself he's he's big into self improvement mm-hmm. you know therapy and coaches and hobbies and you know hiring people to make him better at things and I, I and I think that's that's one thing um, The other is that, at least on the show, he goes toward conflict, not away from it. And this is something that I think um, you've really helped me with, and I think it's what you help your clients with, and I think what people really have the hardest time with. It's like, conversation's easy. I mean, if you're saying people, what makes a conversation critical? What makes it productive is usually to go through a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And how do you get through that difficult thing? You know, how do you... You know, you're going to have conversations as a boss where you have to let people go or you have to improve people's behavior or you have to get people on board. And and those are not... I don't know anybody who's naturally good at that. No. No. And most of us, because we're not naturally good at it, we avoid it. Yep.
1: Yep. And that's um, that's how we met. Right. 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 Our friend friend introduced us. Right. uh, Because... You were looking at an issue here at the journal uh, and you were stuck, all right? And just needed you and a couple kind of senior folks here. Right, 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 right. And we had, I don't know where the space was, but but we we have this conversation where it came down to that
0: and if you and to get through those things i mean if you don't you don't grow as a person and you don't grow as an organization Mm -hmm. and um you're not really doing i know it's easy to say this because it was probably a harder time for the person we had to have the conversation with but you're not doing them any favors either in the long run that's right yeah Um, because they can't really grow here you're not gonna take them on as as part of the team so um you know, and, it, and it, it's, it's, but dealing with those conversations. So Howard, you know, his show is really about conflict, yep. And it's about interpersonal conflict, and that's where the that's where the humor comes from. It could be drama, sure. but it's always humor. Yep. So, um, so one thing he's taught me, and I've blogged about this, is in, you know, whenever there's conflict, don't turn around, turn into it, mm-hmm. and um, and you're gonna find you know you're going to grow from it and you're going to learn from it and, yeah and and your organization's going to and i think that's i still don't like it yeah but i think also even listening to howard in the morning kind of accustoms me to it
1: knowing that may present itself yeah in the day yeah. you think you're better at it
0: uh marginally right i don't think i'm much better at it God. i think i'm marginally better at it i think i um there's always the next challenge. Like I'm good at one level of it, but then mm-hmm. life presents higher levels of it. Yep. And then, um, um and so no, I don't Got think it. I'm that good at it. Okay. <laughs> there, <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> there you go. To be honest. There you go. So I'm much better than you know, I was, though. I that's get a, right. I get a B
1: for improvement. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And you at least did, and you at least have admitted over the years that that's something. Uh, as, as people find out from my other guests as is the, is these days and months and maybe years go on, that it's something that ties a number of my clients together. Well, uh, And nobody likes it. Nobody.
0: I think so. I'm an introvert by nature. And um, and I think I, as an introvert, I just have this... I have a hard time with even non-conflict in, interaction sometimes. Right. Like, left to my own devices, I, you know, I'd be alone a lot. Huh. So, um, so, even friendly conversation sometimes just feels like too much for me. Yeah, much less unfriendly conversation.
1: But,
0: um, but, like you man. said, you just, you know, there's a book that came out years ago, a famous anthropological book called "Life Is With People." And it was about the, um, it's, it's, it's about the Kibbutz movement. Mm-hmm. And you, you just that name. Every time I'm kind of walking away from a conflict, and sort of, I, I just remember that. Like you yeah. don't. You don't get anything done without them.
1: For the show notes on this thing, life. What title was? Life is with people. Life is with people. Okay. Well, that's the irony, right? For my
0: all, my book would be called "Life Is with People," comma unfortunately. Unfortunately,
1: <laughs> but that's the irony to all this. As we as we uh, to quote, uh, to quote my rabbi, as we begin to conclude here. Um, All the good that is—the good that comes in in your life, knowing how much you love your wife and you love your kids and you do love your job and your writing and everything, has come and is driven by conversations, ones you would rather avoid, ones that maybe you could say you could be alone. But as you're—if you lived alone, uh, we certainly wouldn't have met. Right, um, and my life and, would be so much. And, you know. Yeah,
0: go ahead. Well, I was going to say when you mentioned my wife, I was going to say, I think a lot. I think uh, it's interesting that when you asked about it, I didn't go into personal conversations. Partly because you're you're an executive coach, you do in people's mm-hmm. professional lives, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much they get when they talk to you, how much they get into their personal lives. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, it's the exact same problem totally the same and you know the ability to sit with the person you love and have a difficult conversation with them yeah. that's going to do more to determine yeah. your life happiness and i found that with no me you know every time we've had a difficult time and every time we've faced it like the love deepens the marriage gets better mm-hmm. everything's better but man it's those are things we're also not built to do that's right
1: that's right yeah
0: and those are and and you know and i and i know people who are great in a boardroom and i have specific people in mind who are like at the top of their game when it comes to being tough in a boardroom and and helping people grow in their business and having tough conversations but they their relationships are for shit yep and so it just you know i mean i i guess it's not you could do both but it's important to You know, those are the most critical conversations and the ones with your kids, which are also tough.
1: That's right. (laughs) Drew, you're going to keep busy. I am going to say between (laughs) getting people to talk about this on on air, so to speak, and also I couldn't agree more, probably the thing that's changed the most about my practice just in the last couple of years, maybe when President Trump got elected, is people want to talk about more things about their life Mm -hmm. than just about the border. Um, so I spent, in the last day, I've sat with three different entrepreneurs who have all talked in equal amounts about their, uh, the business challenges and the challenges in their marriage. And your point about it being less and less or more of, of a, of a uh, you know, finer line, uh, between home well, and work, uh, I, I, I've, d- I've decided to accept that. I never wanted to be called a life coach, but this is life. And this is this is what I'm going to help them deal with.
0: If you could go into conflict
1: in your per, in your
0: professional life and you learn how to do that, and you you certainly have tools, you'll be you'll be offering yeah. people, then you're going to take those into the literally into the bedroom too. And I think that um, you're just going to be happier all around.
1: Yep. Well, Rom, thank you. Thank um, you, Drew. I don't, I don't know how long this has As we say, been. the yes, Jewish right. Journal, yeah. Mazel
0: Tov. Mazel tov. <laughs> Your first episode. <laughs> first
1: episode, and we will see... Oh, do tell them one thing. Hold on one more minute. Um, I, I was debating with Rob. He was sitting listening to me, you know, think through this podcast. Um, and I was talking about the different guests who you'll be finding out about in, in, the, in the near future. Um, but, but Rob, in, pretty much in a very friendly way, insisted on... Um, on taking on a certain role which I'm going to have him describe uh, on, on, on how to think about your first guest. Well, you told people that I was um, always into cooking
0: and um, when you're making crepes or pancakes, the first one never comes out that good. It's something to do with the stickiness of the, of the pan and, and the amount of butter in it or whatever, for whatever reason. I'm sure Harold McGee would have a scientific reason but they call it, so you throw it away. So it's called the dog crepe. Right. And the first crepe um, you give it to the you give it to the dog is not going to be that pretty. Right. So I told Drew, let me be your dog crepe.
1: Right. So you might never even hear this. Uh, I was going to say <laughs> you have you have performed much better, at least than any dog I could have got. So on, <laughs> that note, on that note, on that note, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Drew. And we'll uh, talk again soon.